This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We are in the Ten Commandments, so you can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And um, if you're new here, we're just really early on in the series. We're at the second commandment today, so you've really missed very little. Uh, just the beginning is important, but uh, you can get that online. You can get the messages. You can always go to our website and download the messages if you'd like to uh, catch up. So in the book of Exodus, what has happened is the people of Israel have been captive. They've been slaves to Egypt for like 400 years And God has done this miraculous thing. He's come in and he's rescued them. He's delivered them out of their slavery. And he's brought them uh, into a a land ultimately where they can worship him and be his people. And what he does is he calls them together and he comes down in fire on a mountain. And this mountain is shaking and quaking and God is speaking to the people and they are shaking and quaking. And he is going to give them his law. He's going to give them his directives, how he wants them to live to be his people. And what's really important to notice in this passage that we talked about is that his deliverance, the prologue to the Ten Commandments, the preamble, what he says before the Ten Commandments, he starts by saying, I'm the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. There is this work of grace, this work of kindness, this work of rescue. They never could have rescued themselves, but God rescues them. And then after he rescues them, after grace, we might even say after gospel, after the good news of being rescued out of slavery, he then gives them the law so that they will know how to live to honor him. So how should they live that w- so that they would be a, 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 people who would honor God, please God? How should they live so that they w- should be a, an accurate representation, an accurate advertisement for who this God is that delivered them. And that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. So we're going to look in uh, chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read the uh, prologue again, the first commandment, and today we're covering the second commandment. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. And the second, that was the first commandment. The second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We come before you today and we ask you to speak to us by your word and through your word. And Lord, we want to come today as those who are moldable. We don't want to mold you into our image in this study but we want you to mold us uh, into your image. We want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would speak to us 
in this time. God, I pray that you would fill me afresh with your spirit, that I could proclaim truth from this passage, and that you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond to you. Lord, most of all, my prayer is that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ afresh today, and that we would have new wonder, awe, and appreciation for you, Lord Jesus, in who you are and what you've done. We give you this time, and we say, speak, Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we spoke on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. We're encouraging you to memorize the commandments. Um, So the second one, let me just give you a word about this. Uh, You don't necessarily have to memorize you know, every statement under each command, you're welcome to do so. But, you know, it would be helpful just to get the commandments down. So the second commandment you could memorize, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You could go that far, or you could include the next part. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You know, that would be, you would get the command then. Or you could continue, you know, the explanation that is in heaven above or the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. You you're welcome to memorize all of it, but I don't want that to be daunting, and so you just skip the exercise because it looked like too much work. Just get the commands themselves. That would be tremendous. And so we had this first command, you shall have no other gods before me, and then the second command, you cannot, shall not make for yourself a carved image, um, shall not bow down to them or serve them. I had a father come to me at the end of the last service, or last week rather, not the first service today, but end of last week after the first commandment, and this is what he said to me. He said, I'm teaching my kids the commandments. Wonderful, great. Um, But I need some help. It sounds like commandments number one and two are the same. So you shall not have any other gods. Okay, no idols. We talked about how that, it could be anything. It could be any God substitute that we might have. Another God could be a God substitute. It could be money. It could be our reputation. It could be our leisure um, it could be anything, it could be our career, anything that we're chasing after, trusting in and relying on can serve as a functional God in place of God for us. So we said none of that. Uh, but it would also include idols, I mean, statues or that sort of thing as well. So he said, it, it seemed to me like that first command is having no other gods. And the second command, don't make for yourself a carved image, that's just like an explanation of the first command. I don't see the difference And he was asking a very astute question. That's a great question. And you may not know, but that's a controversial question um, because different folks have a different view uh, on this subject. And there's a divide between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church on this very issue. See, we know there's Ten Commandments, but we know there's Ten Commandments not because it tells us that in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 does not say, God doesn't say, here come the Ten Commandments. Number one, I'm the Lord, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make, it does not say that. It does not tell us there's Ten Commandments here. Exodus 34 tells us that God wrote on stone the Ten Words, or Ten Commandments, Ten Sayings. That God wrote the Ten Commandments, and so Exodus 34 tells us there's ten. But how do you number the ten? That's the question. And so, traditionally, Roman Catholics have answered that question just as the the gentleman asked me. On plain reading of the text, um, 
the Roman Catholic numbering of the commandments uh, appears to make some sense. And by the way, if you are Roman Catholic, this isn't the part in the sermon where the evangelical pastor bas- uh, you know, bashes the Catholics. That's not what this is about. We're not here to bash anybody. We're, we're here to promote Jesus Christ. And so can I just say that before what I'm about to say is here? Uh, we are not here to uh, you know, uh, throw rocks at folks. We're here to honor Jesus Christ. So let me make that clear. But um, the Roman Catholics have taken this and said just what the gentleman said, that this is really one command. You shall have no other gods, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. It's just an explanation of that. So the images that are forbidden, the Roman Catholic would say, are images of other gods. Everybody would agree with that. Protestant, Catholic, everybody would say images of other gods are inappropriate. Um, But the Roman Catholic would say it's the other gods that are in view with that that statement about images. And uh, so the images that are forbidden aren't images for Christian worship, but are images for pagan worship. And then what the Roman Catholic would do would separate what we would call the Tenth Commandment into two. So if number one and two is one, you would only have nine commandments, but then they would go to the Tenth Commandment and they would break it into two. You shall shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's the Ninth Commandment. And then they would say the Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. Protestants would say, no, the coveting is one commandment. Wife, goods, goods everything, that's all under the heading of you shall not covet. Protestants have understood, and, and this has been a separation historically, would break this first down and say the first says no other gods. Everybody agrees. The second says no images um, to bow down to or to worship, no images in worship, which would include no other gods, but would be distinguished by having no images of the God of the Bible in worship so that there's no images to help foster worship in the Bible. And that's one reason that a typical Roman Catholic sanctuary will look different than a typical Protestant auditorium, sanctuary, whatever uh, they choose to call it. That's one reason it would look different. Now, if you are Roman Catholic, very glad that you are here and uh, be happy to talk about any of this kind of stuff you'd like to. I'll, be, I'll hang around afterwards. We're certainly uh, respect, want to have respectful dialogue with anybody who'd want to dialogue about any of this. But if you're from a Roman Catholic church, this not only is this service different, but this building is different, is it not? I mean, if you're Roman Catholic and you go and you talk to your Roman Catholic friend who's never been to a Protestant church, you never have, and your Roman Catholic friend says, what was the Protestant church like? I mean, you would probably look around and say, brown. I mean, that's... <laughs> I love the colors, but it, it was brown. And if your friend asked you, well, what was the priest like? Brown. <laughs> he just was, every, I, everything was brown. I don't know. Now, I love, I'm not mocking our decor. I love our decor. Absolutely love it. But there's a difference. There's just a difference. This is plainer. This is plainer, to be sure. And part of it is because of how Christians historically have understood this command. So, if it's no images of God that's in view in worship, it's probably helpful to uh, include a biblical example of where is that broken? Where is the second commandment? If it's not only images of other gods, but images of God that aren't to be brought into our worship, if, if that's what's in view here, we do not have to go far to see that commandment broken. If you just flip over um, 12 chapters to Exodus 32, the people of God are breaking this commandment before you can even turn six or seven pages. So here's the scene. God is on the mountain. He is speaking. Everybody is trembling. Moses goes back up and God gives him all kinds of other laws that have to do with the sanctuary and all these other 
things, priesthood and this sort of deal. And he's delayed in coming down. And the people are, imagine this, the people of God getting impatient. I can't imagine. But they are impatient. They want something to happen. And so here's what it says in chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, you can turn and read if you have it. If you have a Bible, go to Exodus 32. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from the hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. We talked about all caps, Lord, when that's in your Bible. It's Yahweh, the name of God. Tomorrow we'll have a feast to Yahweh, God. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings to who? Yahweh God, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what's happening here? Well, they're probably breaking the first commandment because he does say these are your gods. It could just be that they're kind of confused on what's happening, but this is clearly breaking the second commandment. That They are not now coming up with a new God ultimately that's delivered them. They're celebrating the God who delivered them from Egypt. The God who gave them the Ten Commandments. The God who comes and says, I am the Lord. And then Aaron says, let's have a feast to the Lord, but we're going to add a little something. We're going to have this golden calf, this bull probably, which is going to represent the Lord. We're going to have an image that will help us in our feast to the Lord. And we're going to sacrifice to the image that represents the Lord. So what they're doing is they're breaking the second commandment. They are importing an image of their own creation, of their own design, probably something that represented, you know, this isn't for sure, the text doesn't tell us, but probably representing strength. Uh, A calf or bull could represent strength, probably representing God, the strong God that delivered us from Egypt. That's probably what's in view. We are going to worship him. But the scripture says not to do that. Over in Deuteronomy, Obviously, it says not to do that because Moses comes down. He's mad. Moses, like, crushes up that golden calf, puts it in water, and makes everybody drink the idol statue water and the gold water. And then he, uh, after that, he, he kills about 3,000 people. So it was a pretty serious infraction that went on that day. And I'm sure, I hope everyone learned a lesson, but they really didn't because later in Israel's history, they're going to have a calf at Dan and Bethel, and they're going to worship Yahweh with a calf there. So they didn't really settle the matter right here. Deuteronomy 4, this is what God says uh, through Moses, and he's reviewing what happened in the Exodus again, after the Exodus, when he gave the Ten Commandments. He said to you, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words. He's talking about when he was on the mountain. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. You didn't see a form, you only heard a voice. Two verses later it says, therefore watch yourselves 
very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. What's he saying? When God gave the Ten Commandments, God revealed him. That was the first time they had ever heard God speak. God revealed himself to you with a voice and not an image. So don't create an image to represent the God who spoke to you. Now, what's the big deal? If I could play devil's advocate for a second. What's the big deal? Isn't a picture worth a thousand words? Can't an image make a difference? I mean, this is what we hear in our day. If you read literature, especially from younger Christians, um, younger leaders, younger leaders who are uh, oftentimes more artistic, a little more edgy, a little cooler than brown, who don't wear brown uh, and camouflage with paint around them. But you'll hear that we live in a visual age. That's true. That we're bombarded with visual imagery. And if you're going to reach a culture that is saturated by visual media, that we need to import more visual worship because we're a visual people. Can we put that line to rest? Because people have always been visual. What's happening in Exodus? They're a visual people, and God's not present to their thinking. So what do they need? They need something visual that will help them worship God. And they end up with a calf and a lot of dead people who created an image that they were uh, forbidden to do. People have always been visual. What happens in the Garden of Eden when Eve... The scripture says when she saw that the fruit was delightful or pleasing to the eyes, she saw something and and wanted to be like God by eating what she saw. I mean, there's visual nature in the very Garden of Eden. I mean, we may have more opportunities to see visual things in our day because of technology. So... The opportunities definitely are different than generations previous, but it's not as if to reach the people we need to now give something that is more visual, that the auditory is no longer necessary. We don't need the auditory, we need the visual. The problem is that God said, I spoke to the people in an auditory way that is provided for us and preserved for us in the Scripture which we hear and read, and this is God's revelation to us in a full way, not in a visual way. And so we want to be careful, and we dare not be more culturally relevant than God, and we dare not be smarter than God when it comes to how he wants to reveal himself. What is the problem with images? Well, it's simply this. Images dishonor God because they don't tell the truth about him. Images don't tell the truth about God, and that's the problem. This tells the truth about God, the Scripture. The images don't. What do you mean by that? Well, think about this. And let's take this straight from the text we're looking at. Verse 2, when God introduces himself in what we've called the preamble, he says, I am the Lord your God. And we made a big deal about Lord. And when it's in your Bible with all caps, it is the, the, the name God gave himself, Yahweh, to Moses. Moses says, what's your name? And he says, I am Yahweh. What that means is, I am. It's a verb. It's the verb to be. So he says, I am being. 
Okay, this is God speaking to the people. I am being. I am existence. He's saying, I am self-existent. I exist in myself. Self-existent. I didn't depend on someone to create me. I am uncreated. Track with me on this. I am uncreated and self-existent. Therefore, any image of God's going to tell a lie. Because an image of God is a created thing. And you cannot create a thing that will accurately represent the one who is uncreated. The very thingness, the thingness of the image, which is carved or sculpted or drawn, the very thingness of the image communicates something that's not true about God because he is uncreated. The image is dependent on someone to create it. The image is, of its very nature, dependent. Frequently, this is what you will see where images are used in worship. Images oftentimes uh, are placed in a temple or a shrine or a pagoda. Pagoda means idol house or idol temple. And, and so they're placed there and, and they're cared for. Uh, candles are lit, or food is brought to the image I- I itself. And it communicates that the, the image has some kind of need for care. God has no need for care. In, in fact, you cannot care for God. God cares for you. He is the creator. We are the created. There's two categories of existence in the universe. There's the creator, and everything else is in category B, the created. And you cannot, as, as part of the created, create something that accurately represents the creator. You are dependent on him. The problem is that what you create, you control. And we're going to see this in a minute. What you create, you control. God creates everything, and thus he controls everything. You create an image of God to be used in your worship, and you somehow control God at that point, and that is impossible. Paul addresses this whole idea. He doesn't say, look at commandment number two, but he addresses this whole idea in the book of Acts. And we need to look at some different texts of Scripture to kind of flesh this out because images are forbidden, carved images or any likeness of anything. They're forbidden in worship because he says you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So they're forbidden in worship in the second command, but the reasons aren't all given here. We have to look kind of elsewhere in the Scripture to see the reasons. So here's what happens in the book of Acts. Paul is in Athens, and he's in this place where there are a ton of gods. The Athenians were very religious. It says all they want to do is talk about new ideas. And so there are gods everywhere, and there are statues. There are idols. There are all these gods. And then, just so they didn't miss anything, they have some kind of a plaque that says, to an unknown god. Because you, know, you want to make sure that if you're a polytheist, you've got to cover all the bases. You've got to ensure that there's not one God you missed out on so you can have just this catch-all sort of letter D, all of the above, kind of whatever. Just get this catch-all God. So to an unknown God is what it said, and there's no image there. There's no statue there. It just says to an unknown God. Paul wisely, with a heart for these people, wants to take the gospel to them it's a wonderful example of evangelism and how to reach our culture. What he does is he takes something in the culture, and then he communicates the gospel to them through that. And he says to them, hey, I want to let you know I'm here to tell you about the unknown God. You guys have recognized there's not a God. I'm here to tell you about him. And this is what he says in Acts 17. This is how he describes God. 
the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What he's saying is, you guys have rows of gods here. The unknown God is the real God, and he created everything. He's different than all the creation. There's no image of him here. That's very wise. Paul doesn't say, you know what, let me, uh, uh, you know, let me pull out my statue and let me give you an image that I've carved of God so you can put it with all your others, and you'll now know the unknown God. That's not what he does. He says there cannot be this unknown God. There is no image. That's the God who created everything. He doesn't live in temples. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He gave us life and breath and being. You need him. He doesn't need you. You can't represent him is what Paul is saying. And then this is so important. What he says a few verses later in verse 29. He says that we're God's offspring, which is a phrase he took from their poetry, their literature. So he took something in the culture, and he used it as a tool to explain the gospel. And he said that we are being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And that's a key phrase, especially we're going to talk about this in a minute, the imagination of man. What he's saying is that, that God made heaven and earth. He doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't have needs. He, he gives us life. We don't give him life. He creates and controls us. We don't create him. And you can't, by your artistic design, by your creativity, create a gold or silver object that represents God. You can't, by your imagination, is the word he uses, you can't imagine God in a way that can therefore be represented by an image. That's the problem that he's addressing. See, the image lies. It will not tell the truth about God's nature. I meant it won't communicate that he's a, a, an uncreated being. No image can communicate his self-existence. And where the image does tell us something true about God, because you could create an image that would represent artistically and in your imagination, were you allowed to do so, something that communicated about God. The golden calf, for instance. Let's assume that that represents strength. God is powerful. God is more powerful than Pharaoh. In his strength, he delivered his people. Here's the problem. While it could communicate some truth about God, it would necessarily hide other truths about God. So that bull could communicate the strength of God, but what does it tell us about his sovereignty? The bull could communicate the strength of God, but what would it tell us about his wrath? What would it tell us about his mercy? How would the bull communicate that God is omniscient and all-knowing? I'd say quite the opposite. Uh, I haven't communicated with a lot of calves, but I don't think they're real smart. I don't think, if I wanted to think about the being that knows everything in the universe... I'm not thinking moo, okay, at that point. So what does that calf communicate about God's omniscience? What does it communicate, um, you know, about his omnipotence, that he has all power? No cow has all power. So you see what I'm saying? The bull may represent something, but it, in essence, lies by covering other things. It doesn't communicate, for instance, his unchangeable, unchangeability, his, immutable, his immutability. It obscures his glory. An image can't reflect the glory of God. The Scripture doesn't obscure God's glory. 
it illuminates God's glory and reveals who God is and what he's like. So the scripture gives us a full-orbed picture of God. An image cannot do that. And that's the central concern, the glory of God. God, Commandment number one, God will not share his glory with false gods. Commandment number two, God will not allow us to diminish or obscure his glory by a creation of an image that represents him. So that's how we could differentiate the two commands. Since someone's going to ask this, I don't think it's the central thing, but I think it's relevant. I do want to ask, I do want to talk about very briefly, this is a footnote, but what about pictures of Jesus in Sunday school? I wasn't even thinking that. Yeah, but you would. After this sermon, when you pick up your child and he colored a picture of Jesus, you're going to know, do I burn this or frame this? I'm not sure. So uh, I just want to answer for you uh, why he might, he or she might be coloring that. I, I really don't mean to, to mock the, the topic because I think it's important sort of to think about flannel graph, you know, felt board Jesus, appropriate or inappropriate. I think verse 5 is very important on deciding this. You shall not make a likeness of anything to be used in worship, but you shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, I think that is the key. Is, that, is this being used to facilitate worship, encourage worship, um, or is it being used to sort of give an understanding of the story, who's involved in the particular story? You have the fish and the loaves there. You're, you have these illustrations that are tools in helping to tell the story, and you have Jesus with the fish and loaves. So I think ultimately it could be... Um, used in, a, in sort of a teaching explanatory way that doesn't lead the children to bow down or serve them. But having said that, I think we do need to be careful about it. I really do. I had a mom who was careful about this. I don't know. She never told me that this related to the second commandment. But I can remember as a child her reading me Bible stories from the illustrated children's Bible. Uh, and I can remember her saying, now we don't know what Jesus looks like and this is just a drawing and at various times making it very clear to me even as a kid that this, this isn't God and this isn't really even a representation of him in any kind of accurate way. It helps when it's a cartoon figure of Jesus, I think, you know. And so this cartoon figure of Jesus is not really Jesus. So I didn't grow up with my heart attached. I mean, I never came to worship and sang a song about Jesus and thought of attaching my heart to a cartoon that I saw in the Illustrated Children's Bible. Part of that is probably because of the enforcement, the reinforcement that she gave me in that. So, I mean, there obviously we want to be careful about that, but I don't think that uh, I don't think that's primarily what's in view here. And uh, so I did check with our uh, children's ministry last night. I was asking Steve. I said, "Now, I know we use Desiring God material. I know that's from Bethlehem Baptist. I know." John Piper is clear, the leader of that church, he's clearly Protestant and conservative Protestant. So I just wanted to see, do they show images of Jesus? I was told that they do, and I said, okay, we don't really have a problem with that. But, um, uh, but I wanted to at least find out, is that even something that happens in our children's ministry curriculum? My kids are too old to be in that group, so I didn't know. But uh, that, that, there's that, images of Jesus. Okay, to review, the problem with images is that they mislead us into worshiping God inaccurately because they give us a false impression about who he really is. Here's the heart of the command. 
The heart of the command is what Paul says when he talks about your imagination. You cannot, by, the, by your art and imagination, image God in a way that will be truthful, accurate, and will bring him glory. It's, it's not just the metal image of a statue that's the problem. It's the mental image behind the statue. That is the problem. It's when we have wrong views of God or imbalanced views of God that our worship will go askew. So when carved images are introduced to worship, inevitably, or drawn images or whatever, inevitably what we get is ideas of God from the imagination of the one who through his art, Acts 17, fashioned the image. We get something from the imagination of the creator of the image that represents God and comes into our worship at that point, and that is the problem. Here's what J.I. Packer, uh, an author and theologian, says. Just as the second commandment forbids us to manufacture molten images of God, so it forbids us to dream up mental images of him. Imagining God in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second command as imagining him by the work of our hands. How often do we hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as, pause right there, whenever you hear that phrase, I like to think of God as we're about to get in very serious trouble. Now, unless the person says, I like to think of God as he's represented in both the Old and New Testament of Scripture. Okay, that's fine. We understand what you're saying. But if you like to imagine God in some other way, then there's a problem. This is what he goes on to say. How often do we hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as the great architect. Or I like to think of God as the great mathematician. I mean, when I read that, that he said that, I thought, I've never thought of that. I thought of the devil as math. I thought math was associated with the dark side, not God. So I never thought, I love God, but math, I never put those two together. But anyway, someone did. And uh, as we said, I like to think of God as the great architect. I like to think of God as the great mathematician. I like to think of God as the great artist. Or I don't like to think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as a father. We know from experience how often remarks of this kind are a prelude to a denial of something that the Bible tells us about God. It needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. If I hold myself free to think of God however I want, then I am creating an image, a mental image of him, as allowing, rather than allowing the Scripture to determine how I am to think about God. See, I like to think of God as a father. That is biblical. But I don't like to think about him as a judge. problem is that is biblical too. So we can't sort of have a salad bar approach. We can't sort of have a creative approach. I like this. I don't like that. This is kind of how I think about God. I'll take some of that. I'll pass on that. Mercy is good. I uh, don't really want to talk about wrath. We're, you know, that God can't be wrathful. That's the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. And so we don't want to talk about certain things we, we, people could think. You follow, follow what I'm saying here? That the mental image behind the metal image or behind the molten image, that's really the problem. The problem is not just the idol, it's the thinking behind the idol. I need God with me now. I want to believe in the God of strength. 
What about the God that's calling you to be patient right now? Well, we don't have time for that. We've got to get us a golden calf and now, right? Um, recently, a uh, Christian singer has come out and communicated through an interview with Christianity Today and some other things that she is a practicing homosexual. She's a Grammy-nominated singer and a, and a Dove Award-winning singer. And so we used to listen to her music. She hasn't recorded anything in a little while, but uh, we used to listen to her music. And so we, as a family, watched Friday night as she was on Larry King as a guest to explain um, her Christianity and her homosexuality and how the two went together um, and it was sad at so many levels, um, really sad for her, praying for her, not here to throw you know, some kind of uh, self-righteous judgment her way or to isolate homosexuality as the sole sin or anything of that sort. But what was so sad to me in listening to her was her same-sex relationship, which she said had gone on for like eight years, that, that, that was not what was the saddest thing to me. Uh, the saddest thing to me was her view of God, which allowed her to have a homosexual relationship for eight years. Because as she talked and as you listened to her, what you picked up on was she felt certain things and she was a certain way. And she likes to think of God as the one who has joined her and supported her on her journey. That was her language. God is supporting me. I can't quote it, but something like that. Supporting me on my journey. So she looked inside and saw who she was and, uh, and, and made some conclusions about how God had made her, conclusions she made, and then took God and viewed him as the one who was supporting her. So her language was not, and I do not know her heart at all. I'm just trying to say what my impression was listening to her. Her language was not, I took my life before God. And I saw what the Scripture revealed about God in His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His wrath, His forgiveness, all of the character of God. And then I submitted myself to that vision of God, and I said, God, how can I glorify you with my life? And the conclusion I came to was the best way to glorify Him with my life, based on who the Scripture says He is, would be to live a homosexual lifestyle. That is not what she said. What she said was, this is here I am, and God has come to support me on my journey. She has a mental image of God that is not dictated by the Scripture. She didn't even argue that. And thus, she's in trouble. This can happen in so many different ways. Talking to somebody at the break, Pete, we were talking about this, and he was mentioning how oftentimes in various programs where people are seeking to get freed from addictions, and we're so thankful for any means that could help free someone from an addiction in their life, obviously. We desire that be something that would lead them to God. But oftentimes what happens is the person is able to create their own higher power. So, you know, God's my higher power, and this is how I'm going to define my higher power so that, so that the image of God comes from the person's definition. It can in some instances. Do you see that's a problem, that we're coming to God and this is the God who will help me. Or this is the God, this is how I view the God of the Bible, is the one who will help me. He's my higher power. And that is so prevalent. We live in a culture where every view is viewed as equally possibly true. And everyone is free to create their own image of God. But I echo Dr. Packer that anyone who feels free to create their own image of God should do so with the realization that they're breaking the second commandment. 
that they are sinning against the God who does not allow us to define him as he is. Well, my primary concern is not higher power or um, a Christian singer who proclaims to be both Christian and, and homosexual. My primary concern is to look right here in my heart and in your heart because, see, we can do this very same thing. Rather than pursuing the Scripture in all of its fullness to define God for us, we, we can sort of just emphasize the things that we feel and that we believe are true and then live in response to that. For instance, we could come here today as those with mental images of God that don't reflect the Scripture. You may be here today with a mental image of God as very permissive. And so you take one section of Scripture, you have some verses that talk about God's grace and forgiveness, and you say, you know what, it really doesn't matter what I do the rest of the week, It really because I can come on Sunday and confess my sin, and I can be forgiven. And, and it, God's going to forgive me, and so what does it really matter? I'm just all about Jesus, and I'm all about grace. And I, when are we going to get done with this Ten Commandments thing? It sounds like a lot of law. Let's get back to the grace stuff again. Because that's the kind of Christianity and that's the lifestyle I want to live. And I want to be free to be who I am and encounter and engage the culture and just be everything. I don't want restrictions because God, in any way, even if I do sin, God is forgiving. Listen, you have created an image of God that is not really the image of God in the Scripture. Or you could come here on the other extreme and view God as someone who is harsh and judgmental. And the truth is that you come in here today and you think, I'm sure that best case scenario, God is just pretty uh, irritated by me. That's best case scenario. He's pretty irritated. Normally, he's very ticked off. He's very angry at me. And so when I come, I'm thinking of the God who's judging me, the God who is holding me accountable, even though I'm a Christian, even though I've believed in Jesus to forgive my sins, even though I've been regenerated, even though... I have new life in Christ. I still see God as the one who's opposed to me. Listen, you are not living with an image that the Bible portrays about God. You're you're living with an image that you have in some way constructed in your mind. Or maybe the feeling that God is distant and uncaring. That could have been what was going on with the Israelites. God is distant. Moses is up there, but we need God too. What about the rest of us? Pass your earrings. We got something for you. That's what happened. They needed a God who was near, not a God who was distant. And so they created an image and sinned. And so we can somehow think he's distant, that he's not real. And rather than pursuing him in word and spirit, we can lean on other things to comfort us. Or maybe you believe that God requires a certain performance before you're accepted. So you're always trying to measure up. You're always working harder to be in with God. And you view God like maybe one of your parents that held you to an unrealistic standard or some coach or teacher that you had or a boss or you lived under high performance. And so you take that image and put it on God as if God doesn't accept you in Jesus Christ. That you've got to measure up and prove yourself to God to get his attention. That's not a true image of God. You're putting something on God that's not in the Scripture. You are accepted not because of your works, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And because He's delivered you, obey Him. That's the Scripture. Because He's delivered you, obey these Ten Commandments to glorify God and to please Him. Maybe your view, this is common in our culture, God is here to prosper me. God wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. At least the first two. 
because it seems like a lot who honor, who go for all three of those. There doesn't seem to be a lot of wisdom in that teaching, but there is a heart for health and wealth for sure. So God wants me that way. So then God becomes someone who's in my service to, to meet me on my, to my comfort level. Do you see how those are coming with an image of God? So you don't maybe have an image. You don't have a statue with a dollar bill on it. You don't have a, a, you know, you don't have a statue with, that somehow communicates do whatever you want. You don't have a statue that is sort of a finger pointing at you like that. I'm going to get you. Don't you dare come into this house of worship without feeling guilty, even though you're a Christian. So you may not have that on a statue, but you've got an image that would be behind the graven image, and that is the problem. See, behind every idol, one guy said behind every idol, is a super idol, self. And in every one of these pictures, self is the one that's creating the image of God. And that's the problem that God is after. How serious is it? Well, it's very serious. This is what he says, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, you shall not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's jealous? What I mean, like I thought jealousy was a sin. Well, jealousy is a sin if it's I want what you have kind of a deal. Envy. But the kind of jealousy he's talking about here is a zealousness to protect the relationship. If a husband or wife is jealous to maintain unity and purity and integrity and faithfulness in their marriage, you wouldn't say that that's sinful. You would say that that's noble. And so it's that kind of nobility that God is faithful to us and he calls his people to be faithful to him and worship him in the way that he determines and that he prescribes. So it's that kind of jealousness. He then goes on and gives a threat, actually, of punishment. He says, I'm the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So he's saying there's lasting consequences to having a false image of God, worshiping other gods or worshiping the true God with uh, false images. We pass on our image of God to the next generation. We do that as parents. If we have a false view of God, we pass that on, and it's often replicated in them with enduring effects. Now, he, he actually says that he visits that sin to multiple generations. What does that mean? Well, I, I probably know what it doesn't mean more than what it does mean. It, it doesn't mean that people that want to serve Jesus are hindered and judged because of what their great-grandfather did. It doesn't mean that someone who wants to please the Lord, that someone says, I want to serve you with all my heart. I want to believe in you, Jesus. Jesus said, anybody who comes to me, I will never cast them away. So it doesn't, I want to serve you with all my heart. And God is saying, boy, that'd be great, but you're great-grandfather, and so you cannot serve me. That thing about casting you out, here's the exception clause. Your great-grandfather had images, so I am uh, not, uh, not welcoming you. It's not saying that innocent people can't relate with God innocent, so to speak. It's saying that the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, that the, the opposition to God continues in future generations, and future generations are opposed to God. That's the issue here. It's not that they're future generations that want to serve God. And God miraculously intervenes and often rescues the children of those who sin in these ways. Often he does. But he is saying there's consequences, and so that's a sober word for us as dads. You know, pass on skills to your children. Pass on interests to your children. Pass on knowledge to your children. But most of all, pass on a true image of God to your children. That's what's most important, 
is that they know the God of the Bible, and in particular, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say that those who show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it's sort of, it's not just a mathematical picture here. You can get, you know, son, grandson, great-grandson. We can just all chart this on a family tree. That's not really what he's communicating here. He's saying he's making a reference between three or four generations, a little while, versus thousands for mercy. His mercy is much greater than his judgment, that relatively his mercy is much greater. So let's, let's be faithful to pass on a true image of God to the next generation and see God work in thousands of lives by his mercy of those who love him. And if you're from a generation of those who have hated God, then turn to him in repentance and watch God intervene and change that circumstance even now. So the heart of what he's talking about is that we cannot provide an image of God. Only God provides an image of God. And here's the glory of this passage. God has provided an image of God. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this command. What this command forbids is, is, found, in the, is found fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, what's negative, what we're forbidden from this command to avoid, we are commanded to pursue in Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Listen to this verse carefully in Colossians 1. Jesus is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is what the Bible says. There is a true image of God, an accurate image of God, a full-orbed, perfect image of God. And it is spoken to us in the Word of God, and it is revealed to us ultimately in the person of God, Jesus Christ who takes on flesh. See, the fulfillment of this command, you shall have no images, but the human heart somehow longs to grasp the image of God. The fulfillment of this command is found at Christmas. It is God taking on flesh and becoming a man, Jesus Christ. And the image of, the God, of God, the God, the true God, walked among us. John says, we beheld His glory. The very glory of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he says. That Jesus himself, God himself, came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life, and then he died a death as our substitute. He took our sins upon himself. God punished Jesus. God the Father punished God the Son for our sins and poured out his wrath and his judgment upon Jesus on the cross. And the cross reveals God's wrath and His judgment against sin because He judges by pouring out His judgment on Christ, but it also reveals His mercy and grace because the God who judges is the same God who receives the judgment in our place. So there's a full-orbed picture of God in Christ and in the Word of God. The Holy Scripture reveals to us who Jesus is and what He has done. So, from one generation to the next, mothers and fathers, you want to ensure that according to this text of Scripture, that you don't create any images. 
I think creating physical images, that's going to be not as difficult. But creating mental images, I like to think of God as, my preferences, whatever. How do we avoid passing that on to our children? Well, we teach all of Scripture. That's one reason why we teach expositionally here, going through books of the Bible, sections of the Scripture that we might not normally come to. So you don't just hear the pastor's favorite passages or the way he likes to think of God as, and he's got those ten things he likes to think, and so you hear those same sermons over and over. No, we try to survey the Scripture at various points, and sometimes you hear us introduced with, uh, this is a difficult text and probably one I wouldn't have picked today. Just rejoice whenever a pastor says that, because that means you're going to be reading something that is a way that he might not naturally like to think of God, but is submitting himself to God and is going to proclaim that to you because it's for your good. So one is, that's one reason we teach all the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and usually we're not going through a book right now, we're going through the Ten Commandments, but usually go through a book. But secondly, if you want for your children to have a true image of God, then teach them about Jesus, and celebrate Jesus, and love Jesus Christ, and talk of Jesus Christ, and consider the glory of Jesus Christ, and look for Him in all the pages of the Scripture. I think we find Him right here in this command. Oh, it's not his name's not in the passage, but when it says we shall have no images, we shall have no images that we create, we're definitely led to think of other passages of Scripture that says he is the image of the invisible God. Look for Christ in all of Scripture. Look for Christ in the Gospels in particular. Know what he's like. Know how he thinks. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Understand his heart. Understand his truth of his teaching. Understand his compassion. Understand what he opposes. Understand how he relates to legalism, for instance. Understand how he relates to the suffering. Understand how he relates to God the Father. Understand what he says about the Holy Spirit. See, if you study Jesus and know Jesus, you will know the image of God. Because he is the image of God. God provides no images for us to employ in our worship, but he comes himself, and he is the image, and he gives us the scripture, which tells us all that we need to know about him. He's done something else as well, which is a, a wonderful kindness. He's given us a way, because we are physical beings. One thing the Bible doesn't teach is that material is bad and spirit is good. That's a Greek idea, not a biblical idea. That the spirit is the best and all physical stuff is evil. God created our, our senses. God created our desire and understanding. And the, for the physical, he created us in a physical world. And you know what he did? He didn't give us a physical image to worship, but he did leave us something physically to celebrate who he is and what he's done. And it's a bread and a cup. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate today on the heels of this passage. Now, we are not to worship the bread and the cup. We're not to worship them as an image, but we are to be freshly reminded. We are to encounter the Word, the written Word of God, the truth of God, and the Holy Spirit in a refreshing way as we receive the bread and the cup and as we consider what's being communicated to us. There is a biblical example of Jesus taking something physical and saying, as you taste, as you touch, as you smell... These elements, physically, and as you do it as a family together, let your mind go to Jesus Christ, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed, the one true image of God. We're not 
wor- again, I've said this I think three times now, we're not worshiping this, what we can hold, but we're holding and saying Jesus was a physical man who came and gave his life, the God-man, for us. And we reflect our thoughts and our hearts and our affections to him for what he's done. God has given us an image of himself in his word and in the Savior. And we celebrate who he is and what he's done. God, we thank you that your body was broken, that you've joined us together here, Lord. All kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds, two different genders, different ages, young and old, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different interests. Lord, you've drawn us together, and we've been brought together not because of who we are, but because of what you've done. Your body was broken, that our sins might be forgiven, and that we might be one body, one people before you. And we thank you today as well that your blood was shed, that our sins could be forgiven. And this is our only hope. We come here today, Lord, we renounce every hope. Our good works, our morality, our avoiding certain things, that we're not as bad as somebody else. Lord, we renounce all that and say we are sinful and desperately in need of a Savior. And we thank you that you are that Savior. We thank you that when we would grasp for all kinds of images and all kinds of gods, that you've saved us. And we're identifying today, we love you. We believe in you, the image of the invisible God. And so thank you for the forgiveness of sins and new life. And Lord, we want to receive this today in a worthy manner, recognizing that it's you and what you've done and honoring you. So we say thank you, Lord. Thank you for this communion. Thank you for your spirit being here with us. We are one with you and we are one with one another as your people. So thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.